Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 181 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Captain America, an interview with John Tubbs. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, this guy had a very interesting traditional hero story experience with Lyme disease. And he had a number of different events in his life where he acted heroically. And it played out in this interview when he shared his experiences on his Lyme journey. And Rich, one of the things I was so happy that John shared with us is that he went to go see a DO when he was first diagnosed and he didn't get proper treatment. So he really highlighted that it doesn't matter if you're seeing a DO, an MD or an NP, you have to find a doctor who's gonna work with you and really understands Lyme and can help you get the proper treatment. He also talked to us about fecal implants, which is a first on this podcast and how it was a game changer in his healing journey. Another one of the firsts on this podcast was that John talked about how insurance coverage not only limits the way a doctor will treat a patient, but he also talked about how patients will sometimes allow a treatment protocol to continue longer than they would if they were paying for it by themselves. And they will essentially be much more patient with failure coming from their doctor. So this is really an interesting perspective. And I think our folks are really going to enjoy this. So without further ado, Captain America, John Tubbs. Hey, John, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So, John, uh, can you please share with our audience where you're calling in from? Uh, well, currently today, I'm in the Boston area heading to the Cape, um, but I am from upstate New York. Uh, I was just out here for a Lyme treatment and uh, got the whole week ahead of me to enjoy myself and relax. All right, cool. So, uh, so you're not a New Englander, you're actually a New Yorker, so... Um, we, we always give um, uh, trigger alerts to folks when we have New Yorkers on our podcast because we butcher the English language and we need to apologize for that in advance. So, John, although you probably um, have mastered the language better than us, uh, talk to us about where you grew up and uh, what, what it's like to live in upstate New York. Yeah, so for my father's uh, job, we traveled a lot as a kid. You know, I, uh, I kind of was born in Indianapolis, but bounced around to many different areas of the country. But ended up settling and still very young in my life in upstate New York. Um, great area, you know, especially for somebody who's in love with nature and loves to explore nature. But, you know, as we know, ticks love it too. So, so John, what was your childhood like? Meaning what, what, were your, um, what was your education like and what kinds of things were you pursuing during your childhood, which brought you to where you are now as an adult? Yeah, so uh, great questions. I love this. Um, so yeah, I was I was one that was always fascinated with being outdoors. Um, there was so much, you know, for me as the seeker, right, to explore. Um, you know, nature just has a way of like just getting your curiosity, your imagination going, and and again, it was there was a lot of connections that I felt and made through my own health um, by being in nature. So. Um, and I think like really my, my deep desire to explore it more came through witnessing some of the struggle that my, my mother had um, with dieting um, at a very young age. You know, this was back in the early 80s and 90s when, you know, fat free, you know, was the big, you know, kind of craze and like sugar was actually not really deemed a, a, a bad thing at this time. If anything, fat was getting all the blame, but intuitively, and this is where I would probably make the claim and it's been supported by many um, that I had these empathic abilities that whenever information would be presented to me and I, it butted up against my emotional sensors, so to speak, it, it didn't feel right. And I would, I kind of question it more. Right. So this whole idea that 
fat was to blame and it was the source of people being overweight and things like, but yet here was this, this substance that you could eat that was, you know, fine for you. But yet it made you feel like kind of anxious if you ate it. And then you had all these other side effects. And I was a very young kid, you know, and as we know, sugar can be quite addictive, but even as a, a child, I kind of recognized like, wait, even though this tastes good, it feels good initially, I should maybe kind of avoid this or question this a little bit more. And I didn't realize until later on in my adult life, you know, as to why those impressions or those feelings were so strong and really guided me um, through my own healing journey uh, with Lyme disease. So John, talk to us about um, what you knew about ticks and tick diseases as a young kid, uh, first in the Midwest and then, and then uh, in uh, upstate New York while you were uh, exploring. Yeah, so uh, interesting a lot enough, you know, there was no awareness, zero awareness of what ticks were. Um, it wasn't until uh, right around the time I was in massage school that I started learning about the epidemiology of tick-borne illnesses. But again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the information then was still very you know, limited and sparse. Um, but even as a young kid being in nature every single day, you know, climbing trees, being in the woods, I had not one single tick on me during those moments. Um, that you remember. That I remember, yes. Um, so, um, and there again, you know, the development in the area that I lived in, uh, it, it hadn't exploded in, uh, for another 15 years at that point. So, you know, and that's where the, I think the conversation in the Lyme communities as to how and why we're getting more and more exposed to these um, ticks and these infections, uh, you know, is certainly a, a still a debate. But, you know, I remember being a vast uh, swath of, you know, woodlands around my house that slowly condensed itself over time. And, um, but there again, just going out into nature, no worries, no cares. And, uh, and again, I'd say that's very much changed since I've been the father of two children and really creating that awareness for my own children as to how to advocate, you know, when they are in a position that they might be exposed to a tick. So, so John, let's, let's go through your educational background. What, what is your formal training meaning? Where'd you go to college and what did you major in when you went to college? And then what additional training did you get uh, after you graduated from college? Yeah, that, that story's uh, pretty interesting. Um, I, I really believe that uh, your life is a intertwining of um, fate and free will. And so when I, I first, um, you know, when I was in high school doing my studies, um, I, I come from a military background. My, my uh, grandfather was a general in the Marine Corps. And so that, that uh, idea of going into the military was very appealing because, you know, again, I wanted to honor my family's legacy. And I actually was going to go and I had a scholarship to become a, uh, a fighter pilot with the Marine Corps and the ROTC. Um, but at that time, in the mid to late 90s, uh, the requirement for that, you had to have 20-20 vision uncorrected. Um, and within a very short window of time between me getting the scholarship to the time I was going to go to college, my eyesight com completely um, changed. And so I had to, you know, give up the scholarship. And that's when it had me really like kind of looking inward and reflecting, okay, like here's my life's goal. Here's like, you know, what I, I thought I was going to be. 
And that was completely, you know, uh, taken from me. And so that's when I started having the conversation, not only with myself, but my mother and kind of exploring like who I was and like what it was that I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, so I ended up going into a program of uh, criminal justice through SUNY Albany, um, which is in upstate New York. Uh, again, quickly got into that environment and realized, you know, I want to help people, but this isn't the capacity I, I want to help people. And um, I, I, I got involved in, you know, volunteer activities and law enforcement, and I realized how it was a pretty toxic and dysfunctional environment. So um, from there, not to say there isn't great people in law enforcement, it's just from what I saw, it wasn't going to suit me or the values, skills, and abilities that I, I could pour into the world. So um, again, young man trying to figure out his life, uh, go into, you know, uh, general studies of college and, you know, change gears from criminal justice to sociology to psychology. And all through that experience of learning was really the um, foundation that I needed to build off of to understand the human mind, you know, how we really think through problems, how do we, you know, when we get challenged, you know, what is the emotional kind of response that most humans would operate out of? And again, I think that was the foundation that as I was continuing to explore myself after I got my degree there, not knowing what I was still going to do with my life, um, it wasn't until my mother suggested, she's like, you know, you're, you're really great with your hands. You, you know, I've been teaching you about massage since you were six years old because, you know, she, she uh, selfishly would come home after her massages and give a little neck rub on me and she'd say, okay, now do that to mom for three hours, you know? So, and uh, again, I think she was just exploiting some child uh, labor there a little, but uh, um, it, it was, again, more of that foundation I built off of to really explore, okay, well, how can I be of value to my community, to the world? And again, with my, my natural abilities to want to give um, relief, like through my hands, I explored a massage therapy program. And while I was there, um, the way I would describe it was like kindergarten for adults. Um, everything we talked about, and, and this is where I kind of, again, felt like I was like the black sheep of the world. Um, and I'm really grateful to see the conversations out on uh, the communities, uh, especially in, on social media about emotional intelligence. Uh, because as a young man, I felt really kind of like I had to hide a part of myself when I wanted to talk about things like around my feelings. And when I was at massage school, that's, that's all we discussed was like the role of emotions and how they interplayed with our physical health. And so, so why I was there, it was, it was the, it was the environment and the, again, it was like kindergarten for adults where I could be my authentic self, be more childlike to explore and be curious and dive even deeper into the metaphysical world of how, um, you know, emotions, our mindset, and even our physical um, practices can all be intertwined with how we really show up in our, in our health. So, so yeah, having that background, I think was really the preparation for me to do my deeper healing. Um, but again, it was that empathic um, following of my intuition to say, wait, like as much as on paper, I should probably doing this, I'm being pulled to do that. 
And so I'm really grateful that I had certain people around me to kind of guide me and nudge me and say, wait, where are your, where is your heart kind of lie in this? Where is your passions really kind of lie? That's the, the place that you should really follow. So, um, and, and again, that's, that's really what I encourage people when I coach um, anybody, especially young people, uh, you know, when they're trying to find their career path, it's, 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 you know, really gain your education, your training, through you know where your desires to learn more where you're curious so john talk to us about um how your professional path developed after you graduated from college and then ultimately you uh you completed your um your massage therapy training yeah so um again being the the uh, constant observer uh i watched my father who worked for a corporate company um he actually worked for a major railroad system and um, growing up as a young kid, you know, his real goal, you know, his, his purpose in life was about providing for his family um, to, to the, you know, unfortunate, you know, part of his own health, you know, so he really sacrificed his own health with that belief that he was a provider. And, you know, I watched him one day, he worked, you know, close to 72 hours straight without sleep, you know, and I remember as a young kid watching that saying, I will never work for somebody because I know for myself, I know intuitively what the right things are for me, but also what I want to do for others. And I kind of saw the corporate, the corporate culture as being that really toxic environment of take, take, take without any give. And so that really planted the seed to be like kind of one of these, you know, serial entrepreneurs, because, you know, in addition to my massage practice, I've started many other companies. And it's because it's, it's been that real desire to pour in those lessons that I've learned that, again, empower all of us to give us that deeper wisdom as to how do we navigate through cer certain situations in our life. And I, I kind of look back on COVID and say, wow, there's so many people. We, we talk about this in my massage practice as far as mindset goes, the employee mentality versus the entrepreneurial mentality. And so I think, you know, and again, this isn't to be negative in any way, but that um, we, we sometimes that employee mindset is like, well, tell me what to do. And I think that's where a lot of people who get Lyme initially struggle is they go in thinking that their practitioner has the best intentions. But at the end of the day, I realized, you know, through my own journey, those intentions might only be there to serve them. And and so, so that's where, again, it's more of stepping into that entrepreneurial mentality of asking the deeper questions to gain the, more of the knowledge, but again, critically thinking through it so you can put those pieces of the puzzle together to know, okay, wow, this is how I really need to operate from. So, so John, you've, I, want, I want to hit the pause button there for a minute because I want to now focus with you on when your symptoms of what you now know to be your Lyme disease began to present in your life. Yeah. So, um, so I was about 27, uh, when I, I first got diagnosed and it was pretty clear, um, as to how I, I had a tick bite and I had Lyme disease, you know? So at this point I was already out of massage school I had learned about a lot of epidemiology and especially when it comes to skin stuff. So um, massage therapists can be the front line of your health, believe it or not. We can catch things uh, before even your doctor can. 
because um, uh, you know one thing we learned was about the bullseye rashes um, from you know tick-borne illnesses. So I was out golfing um, one day. I knew it was a tick, a very infested uh, tick area. But again, having little awareness of the disease or the pathway of Lyme disease. So um, within, I believe it was, yeah, it was a week and a half of this golf outing, I saw the bullseye rash and immediately identified what it could have been and sought out, you know, treatment. I was fortunate enough to go to a DO versus an MD. And again, I think he was a little bit more open-minded as to um, what, what the actual uh, disease pathway could be. We immediately tested through a Western blot test and had been confirmed. But I was pretty lucky in the sense that most of my symptoms were just like flu-like initially. I had the really stiff, painful neck. Um, the joints kind of got a little achy. But with, uh, after a treatment of a 30-day uh, doxycycline, most of those symptoms subsided. And I'd say overall, I just had like generalized fatigue here and there, but being a 27 year old and running a pretty rigorous life, um, I kind of just, again, brushed that off to me just living a, a pretty active life. So John, let's, let's walk back a little bit to the golf outing where you believe you were bitten by the tick that triggered your, um, your illness. Um, you said you were golfing in a tick endemic area. Um, as a result of knowing that you were golfing in a tick endemic area, did you take any steps to protect yourself from uh, ticks? Yeah, so, well, it's interesting because I hit my ball into some high grass and weeds and intuitively I had a, a reaction to, to tell me, do not go in there. And and again, I didn't have much awareness of how severe, you know, Lyme disease could, could get at that point in my life. But the guy I was paired with, he decided he was going to go look for me. And being a young guy and pretty prideful and still full of my ego, I was like, mm, I can't let him go look for my ball. I got to go look too. And uh, so your gut was telling you, stay out of the woods, stay away from the weeds and your pride set overrode your um, your instinct. It's true. And so, but again, with that same level of empathic awareness, I quickly, as I got myself out of the weeds, I did a quick once over to check if there was a tick on me, but again, not knowing too much of the disease pathway, didn't see anything and didn't think much else. All right. So pause there. When you said you did a quick check, what did that look like? What did you do to check yourself to see if you had any ticks on you after you walked into that area where you had hit your ball and why do you think that failed? Yes, good question, Rich. So, so kind of the quick glance over, in my mind, I thought, okay, if I'm in you know, tall grass, if this thing's gonna get on me, it's gonna probably get on my legs, right? Because you know, I, I assumed the grass only came up to my legs there. And so again, I just looked at my legs unbeknownst to me, this ticket actually attached itself on my rib cage. And this was with a tucked shirt. So somehow, some way, this thing found its way through my clothing onto my body. And so again, this is something when, when we're advocating for our children and really teaching them is you do a total ch check of your body, you strip everything down. And so again, I, I hear it in a lot of conversations with people um, that I, I advocate with, 
that will say, oh yeah, I looked, I didn't see anything. And it's like, you know, this is where you have to be very vigilant and aware in the sense of like checking every aspect of your body. Because like one thing I know um, with my daughter who we found ticks on, um, we know the, the tick didn't come from a grass. It actually must have dropped from a tree onto her head because she- yeah, I, I, John, I think that's unlikely. Ticks actually do not come from trees. They actually would come from a lower area and come up and generally walk up your body. That's not true, Rich. We've actually seen them on our trees in our backyard. All right, well, we we've got, actually we're gonna... pulled them off a tree. Really? So we've we've just this year alone has been one of the worst years in our area where we pulled off just in one month's time seventy five ticks, and these were in our garage, on pavement. They made our their way into our house. We've had them in our house. We don't have animals, so they they have very interesting ways of moving i think we we do need to explore that more yeah yeah i, I agree we're gonna have we're gonna have to take a close look at that but let me let, let's let's talk about your experience again with this golfing so uh, my question to you was did you take any steps to protect yourself from ticks meaning did you did you use any bug spray did you uh use any protective clothing were there any steps that you took to protect yourself in advance of going on this golf outing no, I didn't. Cause again, I, I didn't have much of that awareness. And I think being a young guy, I had this belief system that I'm healthy. I'm strong. You know, I was about 215 pounds at 6%, you know, fat, you know, in excellent shape, you know, exercising every day, bodybuilding, going to competitions, that kind of thing. So I had this mentality of I'm so healthy nothing can really take me down. And again, like the, the idea of a small bug doing that type of damage to a human being was like, and again, this was somebody that had training and awareness of what, you know, diseases could do. I think I was still very much in my ego of that. And so I don't think I did any preparation as far as that. And again, when I wasn't until I arrived at the golf course that somebody said, Oh yeah, there's ticks, you know, a lot of ticks here that it kind of piqued my intuition to say, Oh, maybe I should be on the lookout, but but no, no bug sprays, no like longer, you know, pants or tucking my, you know, socks under my pants. It was pretty standard. Okay. So now let's talk about the tick bite itself. Did you find a tick biting you or did you only see the bullseye rash at some point after you had the, um, the experience at the golf course? Yeah, so I never saw the tick actually biting me. And there again, that's where I, I questioned the, the notion that a tick has to be on you for X amount of hours for you to be infected because um, that golf outing was all of you know nine hours. And I'm pretty sure I know which hole it was that I ended up, it was probably the first or second hole knowing that that's where I hit my ball into the high, high grass area. And so being that this thing must have bit me within that time frame, detached itself by the time I got home and got showered. And then a week and a half later, I developed you know, the bullseye rash. Again, that gave me the awareness that we should be exploring more of the infection side of that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just uh, the, the epidemiology of that rash that really got me concerned that I should probably get tested here. Well, John, why do you believe that the tick was only on you for that short a period of time and that it, it, it had detached between the time that you were at that hole and the time that you had left the outing? Yeah, so where the rash itself was on my rib cage, it was a pretty well-known area like of my body I could see pretty easily. 
Um, so I can, I can very much remember why I was in the shower, like thinking, oh, maybe I should check myself again in the, the event that I, I had a tick on me, check my whole body in the mirror. And again, didn't see anything in that area. I did see this kind of red, very small spot, like thinking, hmm, like, what is that? Is that like a little blood blister or something? And again, slowly over the week and a half, it, it just expanded out into that that bullseye rash. Now you said you went to a DO rather than MD and you were, you were happy that you did that. Why do you think you benefited from a DO rather than treating with an MD? Yeah. So again, as an empath, I'm always sensing and feeling people's energies. And um, so every time I go to an MD, I could always feel like they had a schedule, like, and there wasn't much like listening happening, active listening. And, um, so I think at that point, you know, that was kind of part of the reason why I was exploring uh, the path of massage was kind of getting fed up with empathically speaking with how I was feeling, how I, conventional medicine was approaching myself for past health issues. And so at that point in my life, I was starting to explore, well, what are some other alternatives as far as, you know, assessing your health? And so I was learning about, you know, the, uh, practitioners in the DO side of medicine. So there was a, a, a recent uh, new practitioner had opened a practice and I said, huh, let me give this guy a try and, and see how he, he approaches things. Um, thinking that his bedside manner would be much more um, you know, uh, palatable compared to a lot of the people in Western side of medicine. Unfortunately, he, he shared in the same uh, egos that many of them do. And, but again, he was willing to look further outside the box of that. Um, he, he started asking more questions about the, you know, where I was, that kind of thing. Whereas I've been to many practitioners since, and it was like, oh, like, you know, that's not possible. If it's, it was only on you for nine hours, it, you wouldn't have gotten infected. So, so for me, it was, I was very grateful because it, he didn't seem as quick to dismiss. Um, and again, being within that time frame. And being that he was a newer practice, uh, I felt like I got more access to, you know, uh, testing and, and quick results so I could start taking action on it. Well, but you, you took action on it quickly, but it didn't, uh, it didn't prevent you from becoming chronically ill. So um, do you really think it made a difference that you went to a DO or an MD? And do you think it really matters what their training is? Or do you, do you think What's more important is their awareness of, of and training about ticks and Lyme disease and their willingness to partner with patients rather than, I'll use the, use the line you used before, uh, telling people what to do. Yeah, yeah. I think in that sense, you know, for the awareness piece of like, you know, just being more open to listening to their patients, they're good in that sense. But again, it's, I don't think any practitioner is going to, you know, give you the silver bullet to this. So so that's where um, it, the way I coach is, you know, it, it should be a working relationship. So in that sense, it's, it, it was helpful in, in, in that experience. But there again, I, I don't say to a lot of people, we should all just lean on that exclusively. Well, John, when you were going to your doctor, though, you, you selected a deal rather than an MD for a particular reason, which you've just explained. Um, but were you really more concerned about the training than you should have been? I mean, we, we've interviewed some brilliant naturopathic doctors, some brilliant uh, DOs, and quite frankly, some brilliant MDs. 
Um, so, and I think they're, they, they've all been the exception in their profession, but do you really think the training is what's significant or is it your establishing a proper relationship with the medical professional that's more important? Yeah, I think establishing the more um, proper relationship is more important than the training itself, because as we all know, new information is emerging all the time. And that's where I think a lot of practitioners can get trapped in confirmation bias. So, so you can have all the great training in the world, you can come from the best schools, but if your mind isn't open to exploring new information and really like knowing how to actually use that information, that's where it becomes very problematic. And I think, um, again, for certain types of practitioners, and I just, this is my experience, I find that people that are not plugged into more so the insurance side of medicine have to actually step further outside that box to get results for their, their patients um, because, you know, it's all out of pocket. So I know a lot of people, you know, with my massage practice, I probably treat over 80 people with chronic Lyme. They all will say like they will quickly give up that thing if they don't see the results, if they're paying, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for that service or product. Um, so whereas, you know, if it's an insurance paid thing, that's where people might continue to use something that is dysfunctional, but, and doesn't work, um, knowing that somebody else is picking up the tab. So, so for me, again, that's where I think working with people that are a little bit more outside the conventional spectrum of medicine, they tend to go with you in that journey of exploring what else is out there, um, versus, you know, again, people that are really kind of hooked into that, that system or that structure that um, uh, is the incentive structure. So John, talk to us more about your visit with the DO. You have a bullseye rash, you go to the doctor, and what happens next? Yeah, so we got, we did the Western blot as well. I believe he did a, an anise test as well. And we did get confirmation and I had all the bars and everything. Um, so he said, yeah, we're very much dealing with Lyme disease. So he put me on, you know, a 30 day um, day of uh, doxycycline and kind of sent me off on my way. And, um, and it was during that, that time, again, I made that connection as to, uh, and this is where I've explored even further um, as to the role of my health around Lyme, like that tool alone would, though it got me results, like temporarily, you know, I felt relief. It, it ended up creating more problems down the road, which I believe um, caused and created my, my Crohn's disease. Um, so, so, so in having that experience, which was good because it opened my eyes to the microbiome and the role of the gut and everything, um, it, it, it was, again, quite a little bit dysfunctional when I came back with the, um, you know, some feedback as to, you know, hey, I'm having all this diarrhea and, you know, I'm losing weight, like, you know, why, why are we using this tool? You know, and I know it's from what I'm reading, it's the only tool, but I feel, and I intuitively know this, there must be something else out there. And again, knowing that I was going to a DO, I had that expectation that he might know of other tools that were out there um, that weren't offered by conventional medicine. So so my frustration kind of began when, you know, it was kind of marketed and advertised as, you know, I use all these other tools besides, you know, just Western medicine. And here it was, the only tool he offered was, 
a conventional tool. So John, you weren't sick and you were being treated solely based on the positive test and the bullseye rash, correct? No, at this point, uh, so by the time I got, we had gotten the test back, because I think it was another week and a half um, before we got the test. So I was about three, four weeks out at this point now, untreated. I, I hadn't started the doxy because he, he was just like, well, let's just wait and see. Um, we don't want to really rush this. And so at that point, once we got the confirmed test, he said, well, I think we should definitely put you on a 30-day um, doxycycline. And, and at that point, once I started the doxy, I was starting to get the, um, the neck pains, the flu-like symptoms, the sweats in the middle of the night. And again, I, this was the summertime, so I just chalked it up to, oh, you know, I just, I was really active. I got a sore neck, like I'm probably run down because, you know, I was out boozing the night before, like, you know, and I could, in my mind, I kept telling myself a story of like, nah, I'm strong enough. It's, I'm just de dealing with something because, you know, I'm just living my, my best 20 year life. <laughs> So John, a couple of observations based on what you've described so far, that you're seeing a DO, you're on antibiotics, and three things that really jump out at me is you're, you mentioned you were boozing the night before you were out, and, out drinking, and your DO, who really should be helping you from a whole body perspective, didn't caution you to not drink while treating Lyme disease, which is going to have a severely negative impact on your healing journey. Is that correct? Correct. correct. And then secondly that you were getting worse on the doxycycline, you were getting this neck pain and the, and the fatigue and the night sweats, which probably was the herxing or the killing of the bacteria. And you probably weren't aware or cautioned of that either, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah. And thirdly, you were getting severe gut and microbiome issues. And it sounds like you weren't prescribed any kind of probiotic or alternative to help your gut health or your immune system while being treated with the antibiotics either. Correct, man. Yeah. So you're really setting yourself up here for a disaster down the road. And as you noted, this was sort of a trigger for your chronic Lyme later on. Correct. So walk us through that. You're at the end of the 30 day journey of doxycycline. How are you feeling and what's going on with your doctor at that time? Yeah. So at that time, like, you know, many other doctors, um, and I've, again, I, I have a lot more empathy for them now that I'm further down this road in my journey than I did probably at that moment was, um, if it's outside their knowledge base, they're very quick to say, well, you're crazy or it's this or that, you know, and, and again, it's, I, I think there's a little bit of laziness there of not wanting to explore, but again, I think it is the, the way the system is structured. It's, it's not so much on, you know, their fault in that sense where just to keep his business model going, he had to get the next person in. We, we couldn't even talk in long form conversation. Um, but, and, you know, again, this was, you know, about, you know, 14, 15 years ago now, I think the information was still very limited then, you know, even in those more alternative communities, because it wasn't until, um, you know, more of like Facebook groups and things came online that people were talking about, like, you know, hey, you got to take a probiotic if you're taking an antibiotic. And, you know, that's just common sense. Well, I don't think it was that common sense at the time. And um, so, yeah, in, in that sense, it's, and I'm sorry, help me with that question again, Matt. So I'm getting lost on it. So John, I actually want to follow up with a question, if you don't mind. And that is, one of the things we've identified during the course of our 180 podcasts that preceded you is that the insurance model 
is a negative model because it forces doctors to spend very little time with patients and it doesn't allow the doctors to have the, at least the time and maybe the, the insight that is necessary. What I'd never heard of before you mentioned it was that the insurance model is actually negative from the patient's perspective as well, because they will stay with a treatment modality longer, even though it's not benefiting them because it's, it's something they're not paying for themselves. So can you explore the two sides of the problems with the insurance model, both from a medical standpoint and from a patient standpoint um, in a little more detail, because you're the first that's ever mentioned that piece of it. Yeah, again, because I see it so much in my practice, it's I really believe the model was intentionally structured that way to create a system of dependency. Um, because, you know, a lot of what I see with health, and especially with lack of knowledge of health, people's uh, mindsets um, and psyches can easily move to fear, right? And so we've, we've very much in our, this country, especially have developed this kind of um, idea of like, the white coats being almost like almighty, mighty God. Um, I've heard it many times, you know, again, I've been in practice, you know, over 20 years now um, from people like my doctor said this. And so it's almost gospel in a lot of sense to a lot of people. And again, I think that was done by design and slowly over time because, you know, it, and, and that's where, when I, I flip it around and I, for my, my patients and my clients, you know, and I ask them and I lay out choices for them. I say, which one feels like the most appealing approach to you, knowing what we know based on your health. And the reaction I get is almost like a deer in headlights because they, they've never had that experiences to have somebody ask them in a, a way that asks for more of that answer versus they go to the practitioner thinking they're gonna get the answer. And, and for me, what I've understood in just this journey is it's, it's really about the relationship because you know, like I, I always say this to my clients, you live in your body every day. I don't, I, I will never spend a day in, in that space. So you will know this better than I ever will. So I may have the experience of treating the same exact thing that you're presenting but again, there's so many variables to our health where, you know, we can, we can look at, you know, the big picture of it, but until you've actually laid out more of what those variables are and we play with them, we won't fully know what, what that looks like until we work together. And so, and so, and a lot of that in, involves people feeling empowered, feeling trust. And, and again, I don't think when you have all of five minutes, if that, with a doctor, you can even create that level or system of trust, right? Like, and, and, and patients feel that, they sense that, like that, that rushed agenda of that insurance model of the practitioner being pushed in a certain way, you know, the patient feels that as well. And so if anything, it creates a level of anxiety that, you know, just solidifies the fear. And so what do we know about fear is it, it a lot of times paralyzes people. And, and so that's where, again, I think I'm seeing a paradigm shift in health happening right now, where more and more people are moving away from that and saying, wait, I, I have not gotten any answers. I've, I, if anything, this has taken me further backwards, you know, and, and spiraled me down. And so, 
So I think a lot of people are starting to realize the value, even though maybe up front the investment might be larger. Um, over time, that investment pays off in the long run. And so I think that's where we have to really shift that. And especially with 2020, you know, COVID was that wake up call for all of us that we, we, were, we were just ready to topple as it was just from every structure in, in life, right? It wasn't just the healthcare structure. Um, so, so yeah, all it took was, you know, just a global pandemic to, to push it all over. And, and again, I think more people have seen by learning about the role of nutrition, you know, lifestyle, like all these things that contribute to the overall health um, it has to be done through their own advocacy and it has to be done um, through a system that supports that. And I don't believe the current model of insurance does that for nor the patient or the practitioner. And again, I think that's where we have to kind of maybe put more of those resources back in the hands of the, the, not only the practitioners, but also the, the patients. And, um, and again, allow them to have more of the choice in and again, guide them more into their intuition as to how to find those. So, John, let's go back to your your doxycycline treatment journey. You're at the end of your journey. You're still not feeling better. And I think you were kind of hinting at your doctor indicating that you were healed of Lyme. And now it must be something else, maybe psychological. Is that where you were at at that point? Yeah, yeah. Because, again, I think he he exhausted his only tool. And so at that point, when I I was starting to have more brain fog, I was having more and more gut issues. Um, he, he just, but he was more fixated on the fact that my focus and my brain fog was maybe subsequently something to do with, and I was having some anxiety around it as well. So, and as we know, these bugs can hijack your, your emotional centers of your body. Um, so he was very quick to say, you know, I think you should probably see a psychologist like this. I don't, I, you've been treated. So we know it's not this. So I think that's the reason why you're there. And again, it, it was maybe for his own like relief to like, it's, it's not my problem. He'll, he'll take care of it elsewhere. And again, I think it's because of that structure of the system of, of healthcare. What did you believe at that point? Were you conflicted? Did you, were you torn between physical and psychological or did you know there was something physically wrong with you still at that point? No, I mean, with my training and my background and being an, a deep empath, um, I, I knew there was something else there and I knew it was associated with the Lyme. Again, I didn't have enough of knowledge base and there wasn't much as far as the role of how these bugs were hijacking my, you know, my bio, um, uh, gut biome to affect, you know, with all the die off of the parasites and just, you know, endotoxins flooding my brain. Like I didn't have any of the, the understanding of the mechanisms, but very curious to explore. And, you know, knowing that if I could unpack how this thing worked, I would know how to find the tools that could help heal it. Um, but I knew deep down, I go, there is something in there pulling the levers of my body and my, my mind. And, and I need to explore this more. And so again, I intuitively listened with an open mind to that practitioner, like many others. And I said, no, that, that doesn't resonate with what I, I, I know to be true for myself. 
So this was about 14 years ago, and obviously you've made some great progress since then, which we'll get into. But at this point, what did you do next now that this doctor who you thought was a whole body holistic healer failed you? Yeah, so um, I moved on to other ones. Um, At that point, I found other ones that continued to use antibiotics, which I continued to do because I'd have these peaks and valleys where I would feel really good. Um, you know, I was doing other things as far as like treating my health. I was exploring, um, you know, more so from the bodybuilding side. So I think there were some, you know, benefits to some of the things I I was doing and using with that, that were affecting my line. Um, but at the same time I, I would seek out, I would, I was doing IV antibiotics at a certain point. And that was about a year and a half, two years from the initial, uh, diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I do want to touch on that because we have so many people who are contemplating going to IV antibiotics after being failed by oral antibiotics, and they're just uncertain of that decision. So looking back in your journey, do you think that was an important step or is that something that you regret doing throughout your Lyme journey? Unfortunately, it was a detrimental step that I took. Um, again, just really going into the space of these other practitioners and you know, kind of getting mesmerized more by the title next to their name versus like really trusting my intuition. And when it was presented, it was like, here, you know, we, we can do IV antibiotics and this is better because X, Y, and Z. And, and hearing it, knowing that my intuition was screaming the other way, um, you know, I just, I went in thinking, okay, well, yeah, the, makes sense. The oral won't work, but if we mainline this, maybe it'll get more to the bugs. And it it is that dysfunctional thinking of like, if I just do more, it'll get better. And that's where I realized, like Einstein said, I believe it, that was one of his quotes is like doing more of the same thing is just insanity. You know, it's like expecting a different outcome and doing the same. So, um, so yeah, if anything, I think it contributed even more towards uh, the crash of my microbiome and the development of Crohn's disease. And, and again, it was, it was a conventional tool that was packaged under uh, you know, an alternative therapy. And, and there again, I think that's where I see a lot of advocates now that I'm really grateful speaking and saying, that's not really you know, what, what they're saying it is. So we, we like to call it the antibiotic loop. And it sounds like for many years, you were on this antibiotic loop where you would take antibiotics, maybe get a little bit better, get worse again, take antibiotics. And just that pattern would repeat. You then try to integrate in IV antibiotics. And that same pattern kept repeating as well until you found some alternative treatment to finally help you feel better. Is that kind of what happened over the years after your, your initial diagnosis? Uh, yeah, it's true. So like, uh from that period of, you know, trying orals, getting the IV antibiotics, eventually I made my way towards more of these other tools that were going to support me with my chronic living of it. And so at that point, I started discovering and playing with herbs and um, essential oils. And for a a good period of time, right, I was actually keeping my symptoms in, you know, at bay. And I was, I was starting to function again, I was able to get more of my life back. And, and it, it, it was, it was that kind of carousel that I, I wanted to get off of. And, um, and then just, there was something that kind of piqued my interest that got me to get off of, you know, that uh, dog chasing its tail there. And uh, I was really grateful because I think just having that relief for that period of time through these other tools 
gave me that that confirmation that yes, my intuition is on on point here, and it is trying to find find what else is out there. Here is something, but again, realizing and at that moment, I thought I got this figured out. I'm done. Like this is behind me, and man, was I mistaken that you know you're only as good as how big your toolbox is, right? So my toolbox was still pretty limited. So, but John, what allowed you to overcome the fear of leaving Western medicine, which was being pushed as the holy grail for Lyme disease and go to the alternative medicine world, which is so poo-pooed by many people. What gave you the strength to do that? Because many people are stuck in Western medicine and are looking at some alternative treatments, but are just afraid to make that pivot over to these alternative treatments that, that you're, you're now starting to try at this point in your journey. Yeah, that's where honestly, like the frustration of really not getting any answers, but also going back to that moment in my childhood, looking at like my father's journey with just his work life, right? And just the ego and the hubris that I was always meeting, like through these, these practitioners in the conventional system and just being disgusted by, you know, their behavior and just their assessment of who I was as a person like really like created an environment of uncomfortableness. And I feel like, you know, that, that's something I tell people, the most successful people are the ones that are most comfortable in the most uncomfortable situations. So I have this belief that Lyme is very spiritual. It's a spiritual journey. And it's, and if anything, I think COVID is also that, that spiritual opening that's happening for all of us to push us further out of our comfort zones into greater places of our consciousness. And, and so for me, that was the, the push, you know, was the, all the ego, the, the frustration of just constantly using these tools and not really getting much, you know, help or relief, but again, getting so more into my own being to listen to that inner voice to, that was literally trying to scream my, to get my attention that there is something else there is something else for you. And, and then it wasn't until I started meeting people, and this is, I hope we get more to this later in the conversation. It's the community that really like was that catalyst to, to show me um, there is that other thing out there that you know is there. Um, I started meeting people through my, my massage work that would talk about like, I think I got this thing through a tick bite that has kept me sick for all this time. And I would hear, you know, from one client that said, I started eating these and this is what it made me feel better. So, you know, I, I would hear that and I'd say, okay, nutrition has a role. And then I would hear another client say who would come in and again, she would describe symptoms that, and wouldn't have a label for it like Lyme, but it was very familiar to my own you know, experience. And I'd say, huh. And she would share, you know, I've been praying about this. And since I've been doing more meditation prayer work, like I feel like I have more energy and just, I can just think a little more clearly. And I, and then that really resonated. And I was like, wow, hmm, mindset, you know, that, that can be a tool. And, and so that, that's a lot of where I, I tell uh, a lot of my friends, family, and, and colleagues that I have, I, I'm very grateful that I have the experience that I do working in the practice that I do because I cross paths with a lot of people on the spectrum of life and just hearing stories, authentic 
know, storytelling was what really like started to resonate even more in me is to know, okay, this is where I got to go. This is the direction I got to move towards. So John, initially you started this toolbox with just herbs and essential oils. And then because of your networking and your community, you added more in like diet and mindset and things like that. But just focusing on the smaller version of your toolbox, the herbs and essential oils, do you recall specifically what herbs and essential oils you were using that gave you that quick relief that made you realize this, there's something here, I should continue down this path? Yeah. So, um, so I attended a, uh, a multi-level marketing company's um, work, workshop once, and, uh, and I won't mention the name, um, but um, this gentleman who was giving the presentation stood up there and told me the story of how he helped manage all of his Lyme symptoms using these really specific oils. So it was a blend, uh, this oil, and he, he attributed this one oil that had multiple you know, herbs and plants and oils in it um, to being one of the biggest things in his healing. So it consisted of cinnamon bark, eucalyptus, rosemary, clove, lemon. Um, in addition to that, I was doing other ones like oregano, thyme, basil. Uh, there was actually a therapy that came uh, in conjunction with uh, these essential oils, which is called raindrop therapy. Um, and being that I'm a body worker, it's actually a, um, a practice of, uh, or a tool that we would use. So I was already intrigued as to another service I could offer, especially to my, my clientele that was having more of these long lasting symptoms, learning more about how this treatment therapy could detox the body of certain pathogens and different things. So I, again, not really knowing, and I hadn't at this point, really done a deep study as the mechanics of Lyme. I just knew it was making me sick. I, I got the sense I'm like, hmm, maybe here's another tool. Uh, and I was thinking more in the sense of like how I could benefit my business and my clientele. Not even thinking about my own health. And when I started using it with my clients, like I had this one friend specifically, I, I used him as my guinea pig um, to to actually attempt to learn this therapy. And he suspected that he had Lyme disease, even though he wasn't diagnosed. And his biggest complaint was he had all this neck pain, right? And, uh, and I said, I'm learning about this therapy. It's called raindrop therapy. It uses all these different essential oils and herbs and everything. And it's supposed to radically detox your body. And would you mind if, if we try this? And he's like, yeah, sure. So, um, so as I'm applying the oils on his feet, you apply them on the feet, you'll do them along the spine. As I got to his spine, by the time I got to the third pass, his neck, just exclusively right on his neck, had gotten like this deep red, if not dark purple. And he's describing this sensation of like this white, hot, burning feeling. And I'm like, I immediately kind of go in panic mode of like, oh shit, what did I do to this poor guy? And, and he's like, no, no, it, it, I feel like it's doing something like in a good way. And because he himself, he was a bit of an empath and he, he I'm like, so should we go for it? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's keep going. And, and so we, we actually documented. So I got my phone out and we started taking pictures and the, the way the therapy works is what it, the initial oils do, they ramp up the body's immune system. And then the last series of oils start to dampen it down. 
So what we saw was the, this peak of where his body was actually trying to manage the infection and showing it on his skin. And then towards the end of it, it subsided. So the, the, the pattern of his skin got really bright and then it started to come down. And so I followed up with him days and a couple of weeks later, and I asked him to describe like in detail, like how he was feeling. He's like, the pain is completely gone. I've had this for like over a month or more. He goes, I can't believe it. Like, it's like, it was gone within three days. He's like the next two, three days, I was really sick after. I mean, like I felt really lethargic, you know? And he's like, it wasn't until I started moving my bowels and drinking tons of water that I, I lifted out of it and I had all this energy. And so just hearing that, I was like, Hmm, maybe I got to get this done for me. <laughs> like, and uh, not to say I wasn't getting the benefits as I was applying it, uh, because I very much had a, a detox or a Herx reaction after myself. I, I felt really run down as well. Um, but to hear that weeks and months later after that, that therapy, he was still like pain free. Now, I'd say it was six months later, he started to have symptoms again. But just seeing that tool being used um, in that way and just actually have the visual evidence of it was confirmation. I'm like, this is working. John, when you did the same therapy to yourself, did you experience a similar response as far as symptom relief and, and this really, wow, this is an amazing you know, treatment tool? Um, yeah, I mean, I did get some really great relief. Um, what it confirmed to me was my body was very sick and especially at a gut level. Um, because again, this would have been like a few years after my, my initial diagnosis. And so I was still eating and, you know, foods that I really shouldn't have like sugar and gluten and grains and things of that nature. So if anything, I felt like Align itself was staying in my gut, but as the, the new practitioner I'm working with has suggested that Lyme loves uh, gut flora. And as long as it has the proper amount of gut flora, it'll continue to just stay in there and eat off of the flora. But once it's, it's expended that, it will start to move to other areas of the body and eat off of tissues that have, are made from fats and cholesterol. So like, you know, myelin sheath of nerves, things like that. So, um, so yeah, in that sense, I, when I was doing it, I, I'd have all these gut reactions and, and part of me was like, again, not knowing too much of the mechanics of what was happening. Um, I, I started to back off because I was having so much die off and detox and, you know, I was getting good relief, like for my overall brain fog and energy. Um, but having more of that gut you know, dysbiosis, I was just like, oh, you know, am I really doing the right thing here? So from there, I just kind of jumped around to other tools um, and realizing that, you know, I, I'm, I, I just have to preface this, uh, you know, astrologically, I'm a Taurus. So I, and I, <laughs> I, I really live by that. So if I have a goal and I find something that works, I go like all in on it. Right. So healing very much has taught me in this 14 years of the journey is it's, it's gotta be incremental. You know, you can't just go right towards your, your goals there. For sure. And John, so what else did you add into your toolbox that has helped you get to where you are today? So obviously these, this essential oil and this therapy, which is the first time we're hearing of, was it, was it um, rainfall or raindrop therapy? I'm sorry. Uh, raindrop. Raindrop therapy. So 
So above and beyond that, what other alternative medicine have you used to help you get to where you are today? I know from your pre-interview questionnaire, you talked about some really interesting things we want to discuss with you. One of them being a fecal microbial transplant. So can you talk to us more about that and how that helped you in your journey? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so fast forward a little bit. Um, so there was a point in my life and actually Captain America's story comes in here. So, um, <laughs> so it was about six years ago. Uh, yeah, six, seven years ago. Now there, you know, those oil tank trucks that they deliver home oil to. Well, one of those flipped in front of my house and the guy was trapped in it and the thing was spewing out oil. And, uh, so being that I, I saw and witnessed this, and I ran out first thing and the whole, I could send you the picture if you're interested too, but the whole side of the truck was flipped over on the driver's side. And this guy's screaming for his life. <clears throat> he hit a tree. He's like this close to going through my neighbor's house and <clears throat> seeing all this oil gushing out, the thing's smoking, it's on fire. I knew like this could have been the end of this guy's life. So I jump up on the rig I pry open the door and I look in and there's this 300 pound guy. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to get this guy out? So I have him take my hand, I reach in and I grab him by his belt strap and I hoist this guy up. Now at this point, he had completely shattered the left side of his body. He wasn't walking. So I had to Chris Evans, Captain America, get this guy on my shoulder, climb him down off of the rig. Um, and I, and at the time I was pretty healthy, you know, I, I was still around 200 pounds of muscle and everything. And, uh, and so got this guy off, you know, the fire department comes, the guys, the, the chief is like, what you did was like one of the most amazing things ever, but it was the dumbest thing ever. Like you could have both been killed. Like he's like, this thing was moments away from exploding and just lighting up the whole neighborhood. And, uh, and he's like, why'd you do it? And I was just like, well, I'd expect somebody would do it for me if I was in that situation. So about a month after that point, what had happened was, and at this point in my life, uh, I was in a very dark place. Uh, my marriage was on very shaky ground. Um, so there were a lot of factors and this is the role of that emotions play in our, our healing. And, um, and, uh, so having that trauma of, you know, going through that experience of trying to rescue somebody who, you know, both you and their life could easily have been gone. It opened up the floodgates to the point that's when my Crohn's developed. Um, I ended up dropping 70 pounds in close to a week and a half, two weeks times. Um, I was going to the bathroom probably 30, 40 times a day. I was bleeding. I was mucusy, like, I was dying. I mean, I was gray, I was shrunken. And, um, and so, and then at that point, my line was pretty managed prior to that. Like I, I'd say the only thing I had was just some joint pain or swelling from time to time. And it came back with a vengeance and it just consumed my whole existence. And so it wasn't until, um, and be, and I, I don't mind sharing this. I think authenticity is really important for the story. Um, I stepped out of my relationship with my wife and the day I was hospitalized um, for my, uh, my Crohn's, uh, I was dying. She left me like at the hospital alone. I was in there for a month. And um, 
alone. And um, it really caused me to reflect deeply where I was in my life. Like the decisions I made, the emotions I was holding, it really like, it really opened me up to say, this is your moment, John. You can totally heal this, but you gotta heal you. And you gotta heal all parts of you. And uh, yeah, that, that was the main tool that started to help me find all the others was the prayer, the meditation, the plugging into my spirituality to know that this was a gift by God to open me up in ways that I had all the signposts there. You know, I literally like knew like the direction of my life and where I was going. And I knew it was like the wrong path. And um, even though on the surface, I was doing all the right things, you know, or presenting myself that way. And, and so I really stepped into my most authentic self and really started being vulnerable, being honest, you know, being just living my truth. And, um, and when I, I did that, the people, the experiences all started to magnetically be drawn to me. And so that, that put me down a road. And, and this is where um, it's pretty interesting because um, with the, the Crohn's, I was dying pretty quickly. I, I got to a point where um, my only option was uh, they, uh, they take out my colon or I go on this chemo drug. And so I, um, you know, when you get those options, you're just like, I guess the chemo sounds good. Let's do that. And um, so they put me on that. And that within the second infusion took all the skin off my feet to the point I couldn't walk for eight months. And my life was a living hell. You know, and uh, still, you know, 100 pounds soaking wet. And uh, and was looking pretty bad. And um, so I prayed and I said, you know, God, I'm in your hands now. And um, so, yeah, it was weird because I had a really bad insomnia as well with all this. And there was one night I was just woken up three o'clock in the morning. And I was like, you know what? Somebody else has been through this. <laughs> I know this isn't just me. Like, because it feels pretty isolating at first, you know, I, I think as many of our, our uh, community can relate to is that when you're on this journey, it can feel pretty alone. But something told me intuitively, there isn't, there aren't people that are, you know, I'm not the only one, there are other people. So I went on YouTube of all places and just started this journey around gut health stuff. And I found this guy who ended up coaching me, my gut back into good health again. And this was after, you know, going to GI doctors and going through the conventional system. And he taught me, you know, the importance of getting your spirit right first. You know, so he, he was like, that's your foundation. Like, so what we're going to do is we're going to journal. We're going to pray. We're going to meditate. We're going to like talk about goals. We're going to talk about your vulnerabilities. We're going to talk about where you are emotionally today, the next day and every day after that just so we can really see the pattern because that's the most important piece is like, if you're not seeing the patterns of your life and how you're, you know, really like breaking certain patterns or, you know, creating new ones, 
like that's going to be the determination of like how far you progress in this. And um, so, so just having more of that framework was really what we built off of. And so uh, nutrition was really the bigger thing that we were doing to really like heal the gut, but it wasn't, I, I was still on that seeker's journey and I'm like, what else is out there? And I saw through uh, Stony Brook University Hospital out in Long Island that there was this study being done. And at this point I had really learned the me mechanics of the microbiome. And, and so I, I, uh, I, I saw the study and I, I was fascinated with the idea that you could take somebody's healthy fecal matter and plant it into a diseased person's body. And it was actually going to help the body recondition itself. And, um, my wife and I, we, during this period, we were really actively working to try to save our marriage and heal things. And, um, and so she volunteered to be my donor. And I, I very much believe that uh, this was kind of the experience that brought us back um, as well, because literally she's been giving me shit for all these years and I finally took it. And, uh, <laughs> and it was the thing, like radically, I was amazed that doing so at this point with the fecal microbial transplant i had already gotten into remission through just diet probiotic therapies and um, other other tools we were using uh, for my gut health and um but i was still having issues with my lyme like really bad issues so when i took part in the fecal microbial transplant literally the moment i came out of the procedure all of that had shifted my energy was through the roof like my brain fog completely gone. I mean, literally like an hour after the procedure, I walked out of that into the parking lot and I was like dancing, like with like excitement and energy. And um, so, so what that taught me is that knowing that Lyme loves to go after the gut, you know, there is this balance of the ecosystem of our gut that we need these good bugs and these good viruses and these good worms and parasites. And that's something that conventional medicine has poisoned our minds to believe is that we need to kill everything that looks like something. And so it is a very delicate, it's like a garden, right? It's like, it's really how you nurture and feed and support the soil. It's the same for our bodies, especially the gut. So that experience really transformed you know, my ideas to the role of probiotics, you know, eating certain foods that will nurture and support those healthy bugs. Um, but literally getting somebody else's, you know, healthy um, soil in your body can be the thing that jumpstarts your body's ability to heal again. So John, can you give us some more detail on what the process of the fecal transplant was? Meaning what did your wife have to do? What, how was it processed and how did it ultimately come into your body? So believe it or not, it's a pretty simple process and you can do it from home, believe it or not. The only caution is you, you definitely, you, you got to know that who your partner or your person is that's giving you that sample. Um, because there is a risk that you could pass a parasite or an ova or something that could, um, you know, disrupt that in a positive way. So really simply it's easy. It's just taking fecal matter, using distilled water, blending it up and just putting it up the digestive tract the opposite way. Um, there is forms of it that you can take it encapsulated. 
Um, but there again, I prefer the other route. I just, the idea of swallowing it, not so much, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's really that simple. And I, I was really inspired by seeing some YouTube videos of uh, parents that were doing this for their children that were um, sick with Crohn's or colitis. Um, I was just fortunate enough to take part in the study where, and this is where I think conventional medicine could be, could help us in this sense, um, because the, the actual implant itself went way further up into the digestive tract. So again, I think the results were much more impactful, but I've seen and heard from many people, um, not only in the Crohn's and colitis community, but as well as the Lyme community that have used these home fecal microbial transplants as a tool to help with their healing. So John, now let's talk about the transformational um, experience that you've had, meaning um, this journey has been one where you've gone through a lot of suffering, uh, physically and emotionally, uh, but you seem to be a very, very healthy, uh, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, um, stable person now. So talk to us about how you went from all of that suffering to this new place that you find yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for me, it was, it was really taking more of that spiritual insight into it and asking questions as to why is this in here in my life, right? So not in the sense of like, oh, what was me victim mentality is like, what is this here to teach me? Like, and I, I really believe in, you know, again, I, even if it isn't true, right? Like if all this is just by accident that we're all on this planet together, you know, doing all these remarkable things, if this is just, you know, some mix up of, you know, atoms getting together that did this. Well, again, that's pretty impressive to me that it just was something that random, but I, I take that belief system that no, we're here to teach each other something. We're here to inspire, to create a connection that is everlasting and is timeless forever. And, um, and so for me, when I really shifted and I had that mindset of, you know, what is this here to teach me and grow me in? And I would look and I look at these kind of four pillars of life. Like I, and I would ask the question for each of these pillars, like physically, what can I learn to do better with, with the information, the experience that I've gained from this, right? Mentally, how can I look at situations that I would normally look at negatively and reframe it in a way to say, here, here's what you can positively take away from it, you know, men, uh, emotionally, right? Like, what are the connections and the places that I can practice deep gratitude towards that have really opened me up and allowed me to connect deeper in my relationships with other people? And, you know, and going back again to the most significant one around this is your spiritual um, path, right? Like, where are you in that consciously to know, like, how you are now doing the work for yourself that you can go and pay it forward and pour it out into to the world and to your community and support, you know, the others around you. And um, yeah, so that, that to me was really like the, the opening that allowed me to grow even deeper and see the results, like really like in lightning time and speed, like really happen with, with my healing. Um, because like even the protocol I'm following now, the diet is so disciplined and many people, many clients that I tell them about, they're like, oh, I could never do that. And I say, that's the, the such the such deep 
uh, level of self-love that you have to have that you won't even blink an eye at, you know, having to be that disciplined because you know that's how much level of care you need to have for yourself and for others. So now that you've uh, helped us with this beautiful uh, um, outline of the four pillars of health and how you came to that on this journey, I'm going to ask you for one more thing to help us with, or help our, help our audience with. And that is, if God forbid, one of your children came walking in the room you're sitting in right now and had a tick biting them, what would you recommend or what would you do to help your child so that um, he, she, or they would not have to go on a horrific and painful Lyme disease journey? That's a great question, Rich. And I've, I've seen this dynamic play out a lot in the last month or two, um, because this is by far one of the worst tick seasons I've seen in our area. Um, we actually pulled off this, this past two months off of our children and ourselves, like over 70 ticks. Wow. Um, and counting. Um, we've still seen them. We've, we've actively, we've actually seen them in our garage and our inside our house. We don't have any pets. Um, I've seen them on my children's toys, like literally waiting there to latch. And, um, but the biggest thing, and this is where my wife and I, you know, I think she sometimes emotionally checks out on these things um, because it's more convenient, I think. And, and when she is confronted with it, it's met with anxiety. And what I've really taught her and I continue to try to teach her, but more importantly, my children is you have to meet it with conscious understanding and emotional detachment. So, so for my daughter, she's, she's already been bit probably three, three times that we know of that we've removed them. Um, but we, we teach her to, you know, have that self-awareness, right? Okay. What do you do in this moment? Knowing that you have this tick, right? So we've taught her, you know, get mom and dad, get somebody that can help you, especially if this is what, and she's only seven years old. So I don't, I don't think she's at that point to properly be able to remove a tick. So, you know, get mom and dad, but more importantly, before you take those steps, like where are you on your emotions? And here, if you are anxious about, here's a way that we can walk through it and keep the calm, right? So I'm giving her coping mechanisms and tools to really help her emotionally, like get out of the panic state to say, okay, where are all my options here? And I think that's so important. Like, I mean, that's why I think I operate so well as Captain America, because that story I told you, that's one of many. I've, I've had to rescue people from other situations. Right, John, let's, let's pause there for a second, though. But, um, and there is a difference between fear and anxiety. And of course, fear is going to be triggered when you're going to be attacked, right? So mm -hmm. it, it is true that, um, that finding a tick will trigger fear. And fear will, in many cases, cause you to be paralyzed. Now, again, that's different from anxiety. Um, what specifically have you taught your daughter to do so that she could um, untrigger the smoke detector that goes off in her brain when, uh, when she sees a tick? Yep. So first thing is take a deep breath. Okay. It's, it's on you. It's good that it's on you because we can see it, you know, have we not seen it, then we'd have other issues. So again, taking that deep breath, you know, really assessing the situation as to, okay, where's mom and dad? What do I need to do? Um, so she can't assess while she's in fear mode. Right. So, I mean, so I, I'm asking you to walk it back. What specifically are you telling her to do before she can 
look for mom and dad because if she's in fear and 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 her amygdala has been triggered and she is now now the smoke alarm is going off how are you getting her to calm down the smoke alarm so she can then go for the help that she needs the one thing that we always talk about is this isn't her first first time right so we've been down this road before so kind of coming back to past experience right of how you survive something and again, that's hard to do when you are in that fear state. So what we, we've taught her to do, the first step of that is like, get out that energy, right? So like, if you're feeling it, like, get it out. So like scream, yell, kick, punch, like a pillow, whatever you need to do. And then like, once you kind of dissipated some of that energy or burned it off, like now take that deep breath. Try to think through this, right? Like, okay, why are you taking that deep breath? Remember, like we, we've had ticks on us before. What do we do? Like, what's our plan of action? We've, so we've already talked through it. So it's like step one, it's like, just get mom and dad's attention. You know, mom and dad know how to, you know, manage this situation. Um, and so do you. And, and so just knowing that she has the support of other people gives her that like, calm a little bit more that hey we've done this before like we know what we're doing here so now it's become routine for her where she's just like dad i got another tech like you know like get the tweezers and i'm like wait where are they again no they're in the drawer upstairs remember like so she's already a part of the action steps being that she's rehearsed it and that's where we've done role play before in the past so it's actually it works really well for kids um, to dissipate the fear. So we do role play all the time when we, they come into the house, like, what do we do? Like, even in the winter months, we, we kind of joke with them. We're like, what do we do guys? When we, if we come in from outside, take everything off. So they strip down, they throw it all in the dryer. You know, even the winter we're rehearsing it. we're practicing for summer. And when you train for something, this is where I believe like, um, success is, is the real definition is when training and opportunity meet. Um, we've been training our children so they won't get to a place of fear, right? Like I, ever since they've been born, I've been talking about Lyme disease and what it does and how it works in the body. And again, building that, that education or that insight as to how the mechanics work because you know I think my brain operates more like a scientist or a detective. So for me, it, I get more confidence knowing how things work. You know, once I know like how the machine runs, then I'm like, oh, I don't have to fear this. Like, I just know where the right levers are to pull. So for our kids, we really, to dissipate that idea of fear, we really do the rehearsal part, but also give them the coping tools to like outlet that energy if they are in that state of fear or anxiety. Um, but also, you know, again, to have the awareness to know where to go for support and, you know, help. Can't hear you. So, so John, give us the rest of it. What else will you do now that you find a ticket and you remove it from your child? What else are you going to do to make sure that you give them the greatest likelihood of not having a um, chronic line journey? I'm sorry, say that last piece, Rich. What else will you do? after you remove the tick so you can help your child not go on a chronic Lyme journey? Yeah, so the, the other thing we talk about and my kids see it every day, you know, I food prep, I make really clean food, you know, I eat a certain way. 
So as I'm doing these things, I'm describing why I'm doing it, right? I think it's really important for people and especially just people in general, right? Because I think what COVID had, with everything that happened with COVID and politics during that time, and people are still really trapped in this, nobody really knows who to believe or what to believe right now. And, and that's where it's, I think it's important to frame when you have a specific approach or an agenda or something you're trying to do, especially with kids, because kids are like really keen to like what you're doing with them. And they kind of, they want to know what, what's really operating behind the scenes. I think it's important to, you know, tell why you're doing what you're doing. And so when I'm cooking a certain way, I'm literally telling my kids, I'm like, I don't want to feed the bad bugs. Like, you know how mom and dad don't want to give you sugar? It's because we don't want to feed those things because when they, they get fed, they grow. And, you know, so I'm explaining it at a kid level and I have to do it a lot with the, my, my clients and my patients. I don't, I can't get into the, the heady stuff. Like, it's like, you got to really dumb it down. And, um, and when I do that, they're like, oh yeah, they, they really, and I'm just being authentic about it. It's like, I'm not taking the approach of like, you got to do it this way, you know, or I'll use questions to get them thinking, you know, differently. Why would we want to eat this way? Right. You know, or why would we want to like put certain essential oils on us when we go out in nature? Like my daughter knows citronella keeps bugs and ticks away. You know, she knows that cedar oil can be used, you know, for, for these things. She's made videos like, and, and so for anything, like she likes kind of being the center of the spotlight. So I kind of use that. I learn their motivations and I leverage it. So I say, Harper, do you want to make a video and teach people like how to keep ticks away? She's like, oh yeah, I want to be in the camera. Like, so as a parent, like, I think that's important to do is to, you know, not only educate as to why you're doing the things that you're doing, um, but, you know, use their motivations to, you know, again, help them learn it even more. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, John Tubbs. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about John, please visit his Instagram page at Be Your Own Physician. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or on Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.